0: Say, I know.
1: Let's take an old fashioned walk. I'm just bursting with talk. What a tale could be told if we went for an old fashioned walk.
2: Let's take a stroll through the park, down a lane where it's dark, and a heart that's controlled may relax
1: on an old fashioned walk. Good morning. And welcome to episode 722 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by
3: Sam Sam Miller's creaky
1: chair from Baseball (laughs) Prospectus. From Baseball Prospectus. That's the
3: thing about that's the thing about the microphone is now you're getting desk recording instead of uh, kitchen recording, oven uh, near the oven recording, Uh and uh, desk has a creaky chair. Put the microphone on the floor. Wow, that chair is creaky. It wasn't creaky yeah. two days ago. It was, yeah, it was. It's been, cre- it's a hundred and twenty-year-old chair, and it's been creaky for one hundred and nineteen years. So now I have to buy you a non-antique
1: chair and send that to you too. <laughs> so this is our second attempt, at episode seven twenty-two. We had some technical difficulties the other day when we tried to record. We talked for half an hour, or so I would say it was a fringe-average episode. Maybe a maybe a solid-average episode. And at the end of it, my voice was the only voice on the recording. But you you were actually there, right? I was talking to you.
3: Yeah. Okay. And I know, I know there's a lot of outrage out there on Twitter about Ben and what he did, <laughs> how he messed things up. And I just, I know that people are calling for him to be fired. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I stand by Ben. Yeah. I stand by you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, I would consider you on probation. <laughs> okay. That's but fair. If it happens twice, I'm out yeah <laughs> okay you would be you would I wonder how many times in a row would you have to record and have it not record before you quit
1: It's one of the most demoralizing feelings that I experience in my daily life It's not okay. like a it's not like a traumatic it's not a family loss or something but just in my day-to-day work life something not recording that I thought was recording is one of the worst feelings when I was working on a Story recently I talked to a guy for about 25 minutes and it was great and I was all ready to transcribe it And then the same thing happened on a different computer. I know why that one happened I don't know why our one happened But it was pretty terrible when you open it up and you're all ready for those juicy quotes and it's gone forever <laughs> And then yes. what do you do? You can't you, you can't be like so let's say all of those things exactly the way that you said them the first time again so there's no good answer.
3: Find a new article to write. Yeah,
1: pretty much. So we're maybe going to talk a little bit about what we talked about because I think it's still worth talking about. But first we'll do a couple emails and a play index and we'll see where we stand. So question from Tom. Your discussion about how much you'd play pay Matt Harvey to pitch out the season and postseason got me thinking, what if a pitcher agreed to sign for the minimum with a playing time bonus that paid him X dollars per start. This would be highly unorthodox, but doesn't seem like it would violate the CBA, which allows playing time-based bonuses. The team would have to deal with payroll uncertainty, but would have much less exposure to injury risk, and could shut him down to save money if the season was lost. The player could probably get substantially more per start than on a guaranteed contract. Do you see this ever making sense? Ignoring league or union objections, how much could an ace like David Price get per start? This is it similar to the question maybe about why guys don't get one-year contracts? It's like yeah. a more extreme version of why don't players sign one-year contracts for forty million dollars?
3: Yeah, I mean the 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 math that he alluded to would be more complicated, but these teams are absolutely capable of doing that math. They have smart people who can you know kind of game out the scenarios and. The players have smart agents who can do the same and figure out where the... I mean, this is what people who do transactions, financial transactions do. They weigh the risk and they figure it out, right? So the complicatedness of it need not be a problem. I think two issues with it. The Well, three issues. One which I hadn't really thought about, but which is a very good one that he brings up, is that clubs uh, don't want to deal with the uncertainty. $30 million, not knowing whether or not you're going to spend $30 million, is actually really tricky. I mean, I know these clubs are rich and can spend a hundred fifty million dollars on players, which boggles the mind. But they also do have budgets, and they—it isn't as though they have just cash floating around. They—I think it would be harder than maybe you might appreciate uh, to have this much uncertainty. But the two other ones, the big ones, one is uh, as we've talked about with uh, you know a lot of contracts with extensions and all those sorts of things is there's a an imbalance between the amount of risk that a club is willing to uh, uh, to take on and the amount of risk that an individual player is willing to take on he only gets one career he only gets one chance at this and so there's a, a huge uh, there's a there's a uh, big premium on certainty certainty that he will be rich forever certainty that he will uh, never have to coach uh, college baseball if he doesn't want to certainty that his uh, grandkids can grow up spoiled little jerks. So I think that there is a, I mean you can, obviously you can put kind of a price tag on that. You can figure out a way to value the certainty on each side. But I think the imbalance between those two things might make it so that a deal in the middle uh, that makes sense to both just literally doesn't exist, can't exist. Uh, you might, like the club might have to so overpay uh, to get these uh, the, the start by start payment uh, that it wouldn't be worth while for them. They wouldn't be getting the discount that they need. The second thing is that you create a uh, difficult uh, clash of incentives between the player and the team, where the player and the team are no longer necessarily on the same side. The team doesn't want you to start if they can avoid it, right? They want you to start when they need you to start, and if it were September 28th and they're down by a game and you're good, they absolutely want you to start. And if it's September 28th and they're bad, they absolutely don't want you to start. And so you have, like, each potential situation. Like, opening day, yeah, they probably want you to start. Um, May 14th, down by eight games, probably want you to start. Uh, July 31st, down by 27 games, probably don't want you to start. And you could see situations where, like, from late May onward, when a team knows it's out, uh, or even when a team is way, way up, if like would the Royals want this guy to start for them right now? Probably not. They don't need to pay a million and a half a start for David Price right now in September. And so you'd have this constant negotiation and this constant tension. And finally, it while this deal would be novel and might work for you as a team, uh, the other twenty nine teams might think that it's bananas and it might be hard to trade that guy. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you're trading him at the trade deadline and uh, uh, the cost, I mean, a team might have to, I, if you're overpaying for a guy, now all of a sudden instead of uh, cashing in a guy who you paid $25 million to and now looks like a bargain for the final two months plus the postseason, well now his, his pay is still really high and maybe uh, teams don't want to take on that amount of money. That was a very thorough answer. Thanks.
1: <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to add to that.
3: Uh, so the question, though, was how much would David Price get per start if this were just the norm? Yeah. Uh, and probably, let's see, David Price is what, like a six or seven win pitcher? Yeah. Well, and yeah. So uh, if you had total certainty that he was, if you were paying start by start and there was no long-term risk uh, and you could cut it off at any time, you would probably pay that guy like $45 million a year. Uh, or at least he would be worth that. I don't know if you would pay him that because it's unprecedented and teams don't like to break precedent. But say he's worth 45 or $50 million a year. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so then, I mean, if you divide by 30, you get a million and a half per mm-hmm. start. But again, you don't necessarily need him. Like how You have to figure out how many years you're going to actually want him pitching for you at the end of the year. I mean, are, are you going to be... S- like, the thing about it, like, okay, so say you sign David Price for $30 million, and he's awesome, right? And he earns his contract by staying healthy and pitching like a Cy Young. Now say you're a bad team, uh, and you're out of it by the end of August, you're still kind of happy you have David Price, mm-hmm. right? You're not, you're not being like, dang it, wish we hadn't signed David Price because we're not competitive. What a waste it was to sign a good player this year because we weren't competitive. You'd still probably be pretty okay You'd be like, hey, we signed this guy expecting certain performance He gave us that performance, we're happy Mm -hmm. But now now if you're remaking this decision every five days And trying to sort of relitigate your happiness every five days You might, like, really resent that you have to keep paying him And it might not be fun here's,
1: Here's a question If this were the arrangement and he had this flat rate For a million and a half or whatever How many starts would he make do you think if the team if the team were convinced I mean if the team agreed to this rate and he's on this team and he has to start for this team and when he does start he gets that much money but the team doesn't have to start him how many times would they actually elect to pay that price I wonder because there are starts at the end of the year maybe where you don't need him because you you have a comfortable lead, you could start someone else, and yet you also want to maybe keep him prepared for the postseason. Or if you fall out of contention, then you're not going to use him at all, maybe. Maybe you wouldn't use him down the stretch to any extent. So if a guy like Price, I mean, if he makes 30 starts in a regular season with a guaranteed contract, how many starts would he make for the, the typical team with this kind of contract?
3: It's hard to say what the typical team is. Yeah,
1: I guess it depends. If it's a if it's a competitive team in a close race, then he
3: makes every I think, start. I think he makes every start as normal. I don't think he makes more. And you know, maybe he doesn't make the last one or two. It's yeah. weird too because if you think about it, I mean, I talked about how you'd have this clash of incentives between the player and the and the team. It in a way you would like in a kind of abstract way you might actually expect that it would be the other way that the way that we do it now creates the classroom incentives because the team has already paid for the guy and now wants to squeeze as much as possible out of him and doesn't have to care about him right because uh, he's theirs they bought him they can do with him what they want and so you could imagine like in a alternate universe uh, this being like, hey, well, we don't care about you. We're going to have you start 65 times. Uh, but they don't. Like, there's, a, there's been a negotiated, socially acceptable way that pitchers are used that everybody more or less agrees with, and there's very rarely any uh, argument about it. You start every fifth day. You do it until the end of the year. We only skip a start if, uh, you know, we have reason to believe that you're uh, young or frail or tired or something like that. And uh, and everything works out. And this, the way that is being proposed, is actually the kind of more true economic uh, model, where there's a a very direct performance for compensation uh, system set up uh, that should fairly compensate the player for what he's done, and that gives everybody kind of extra agency in the situation. And yet, that's the one that seems like it would be troubling. And I guess maybe it would be maybe. It's simply that instead of making one agreement and deciding that you guys are in bed together and you're going to be partners, and so let's make the most of it, it's deciding that we're going to have a uh, negotiated transaction every five days uh, that will lead to more tension. Mm -hmm. To answer the question, though, Mm -hmm. to answer the question, how much would David Price get paid if it were a per start basis, I would say uh, that he would get paid one and a quarter million dollars per start.
1: Yeah. It'd be interesting if it were like variable pricing, like yes, like, like teams tickets. use with tickets where yeah. it's it's an appealing series and they're going to draw a lot of fans, so they raise the prices a little bit. So if you had that with David Price, it would be kind of cool to see the, the differences, like just even using his season right now. Like, I mean, at the beginning of the year, the Tigers were contending, and so you would pay him a certain amount, but maybe you'd pay him more if you were playing you know, the Indians or the Royals or the Twins or whoever than you would in a, a non-division opponent or a opponent that you thought you could beat easily. Like, it would depend on a lot of factors. It would depend on, well, how how likely you think you are to win that game without David Price, depending on the other team and the other team's starting pitcher and just how important the game is to your playoff odds and championship odds. So you would see probably... I mean assuming you had him make every start there'd be a pretty huge disparity probably between the most expensive start and the least expensive start because you know down the stretch now when he's pitching for the Blue Jays and they're facing the Yankees and they're trying to win the division then you would pay him I mean if you're if you're saying the average would be 1 and a quarter million how much do you pay him in September when you're facing the Yankees and you're essentially tied in the division race, then you'd pay, you know, three times that or something. I don't know.
3: Yeah. So let's, let's for instance, take Matt Harvey, who we talked about how much you would pay if you could buy his services for the rest of the year right now. And I forget what we said, but a lot like 17 million. But given where the Mets are right now, for instance, it, his next scheduled start is, I think Saturday. If I could negotiate payment to him with all my other pitchers available for the same negotiation. How much would I pay for Matt Harvey to make that start on Saturday? Probably like thirty thousand dollars. Like I would spend almost nothing on it. Like they're they're gonna win this division, probably. And I have other guys who I think can get me there. It'd be like pitching Harvey with a nine run lead in the ninth. You know? Sure he'd be better than the other guy, but I just don't need to use him. So maybe thirty thousand dollars just for just to watch him. Just so that when I die, I could say I watched one extra Matt Harvey start. Maybe I'd pay thirty thousand dollars if I were the owner of the Mets. Now, if it were Game Seven of the World Series and it were Matt Harvey, or even better, if it were Clayton Kershaw, what would you pay for Kershaw to make Game Seven, to start Game Seven for you? Playoff choker, Clayton Kershaw. <laughs>
1: um,
3: I would pay him, man, uh, twenty million. I was, yeah, I was probably say like between twenty and twenty-five. And that might be low. Yeah, yeah. the only re- I mean a win, a World Series win is definitely worth more than that. But of course, he's only a part of a win. It's not like he single handedly wins a game that you would otherwise never have won. I mean, yeah. he might pitch and you might lose. He might not pitch and he might win. I don't know. He adds, and I'm not doing the math right now. But there's, it depends who you have as an alternative. If it's Kershaw over Granky. Then maybe I don't really like. 6 million and it's probably almost always going to be something like Kershaw over Granky or Kershaw over somebody pretty good Mm -hmm. but uh, if it were Kershaw over Aaron Harang or something like that (laughs) I would I probably would go 20 million for that
1: yeah and Aaron Harang has been so bad I was looking at his stats since the end of uh, May I think it was and he has about an ADRA since May and it's like a Earned eighty ERA, it's bad.
3: Mm. Well, wow! Uh, when we when we started the Stompers, he was pitching well. As, soon as yeah. I said, Aaron Oh, there I've done it again. I've said something dumb because I haven't followed the season closely enough, and I got it right. I actually got this one right. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, when so let's see when Stomper's spring training started, he that's had a almost one,
1: exactly when his yeah, season. Yeah, he
3: had a he had a one eight two ERA yeah. <laughs> the day that Stomp spring training started.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Alright, so Wes
1: wants to know, what's the highest ERA an undefeated starter could have and retain his job? If you're 10-0 in 10 starts with a 7 ERA, are you still in the rotation? 8? 9? At what point does the ERA stop mattering and you just get to start every fifth day no matter how terrible you look? 14-0, 15-0, more. I'm going to say that, well, the answer to this question is much different from the answer I would give 10 years ago or 20 years ago.
3: Oh, it's interesting. To me it's I'm if it's undefeated to me I'm not sure the answer is different. I I don't know. I
1: th- I mean maybe undefeated is different from rarely defeated, but there have yeah. been there have been some examples this year of guys who were let go or were demoted even though their surface stats or their ERA or whatever were were very good. So Jason Fraser was DFA'd by the Royals In July, even though he had a 1.54 ERA in uh, 26 appearances and 24 innings, but he had walked 15 guys in those 24 innings. And so he had not been good, but he had a 1.54 ERA, and you'd think that that would be enough to let a guy keep a middle reliever job, but it wasn't. He was DFA'd. And then there were a couple other instances, like with the Blue Jays, Daniel Norris started the season with them, and he had a, a respectable ERA after five starts or so. I mean, he, he made yeah he made five starts in April, and he had pitched uh, not very well, but he had a decent ERA. I can see what it was. And he was demoted to the minors. Of course, he was a, a young guy who didn't have much experience, but still, you'd think in an earlier era, maybe they would have let him go. He had a 3.86 ERA after five starts, you know, in the AL East in Toronto, which is fine. But he also had, in 23 innings, he had 12 walks. or You know, he hadn't, hadn't pitched particularly well, so they demoted him. And then they also did that with Hutchison recently, because he is kind of the closest to this sort of guy who has a high ERA but a good win-loss record because the Blue Jays score a ton of runs and so Drew Hutchison is 13-4 and four right now with a 5.33 ERA and he was demoted to the minors not long ago which I think was more of a like a roster thing and they didn't need him at the time than it was a purely punitive thing but it was not the sort of thing you do to a guy who's 13-4 and four if he actually has other stats that support the 13-4 and four. so I think clearly over the last few years, there's been a lot less tolerance of high ERAs with poor win loss records, or just, or win loss record matters less. Teams are clearly taking it into consideration less. Voters are too. So does it matter that he's undefeated? I don't know. I, maybe, but if you have a 7 ERA, 8 ERA, 9 ERA, and you're undefeated, I don't know that you get a start if there's anyone else good
3: this this is a risky we're we're risky right now because this could very easily go into a johnny a ghani jones discussion (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs)
0: uh
3: i um i think that it does matter to me whether uh, so the spirit of the question normally i would take the spirit of question to be how much would you weigh era against win loss record uh, but I'm not sure, since this is an effectively wild question, if he's specifically talking about undefeated in the Ghani Jones sense. Um, and so I will answer it un- as though this pitcher is literally undefeated and not simply has a good record. I think that you would almost have to... Now, I would, as an analyst, say, yes, get him out of there. I don't. I don't care if it's... I don't even care if it's like something reasonable, like four point seven ERA, and he's you know seven and zero. If I have a pitcher, I think will have a four point six ERA, and I think he will have a four point seven ERA. Then yes, I would bet on the four point six pitcher going forward, obviously or not obviously, maybe, but I would. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, if I were running a team, I think you have to let him lose. I think I I don't think it plays well if. So, baseball players are a little different because our job is to predict results. Their job is simply to get results. And I wrote about this with uh, Brandon Phillips. Remember when Brandon, uh, you, the, yeah. we talked, yeah, the Brandon Phillips article that we once talked about that I had forgotten I'd written. And then I reread it and I, I thought, oh, yeah, that was interesting. One of the things about that article was that Brandon Phillips was talking about how he was still good. Like, he was still proud of his how good he was, even though everybody else was criticizing him. And he mentioned his RBIs, and the internet's like, blah. You know, like RBIs. But like the dude's job is literally just to drive in runs. Like he doesn't, his job is not to predict whether he's going to drive in runs. It's just to help his team win. And if you, if sure, if all your hits cluster around uh, lucky sequencing to make you look like a better run producer than you actually are. Uh, that doesn't necessarily pour, uh, foretell great things in your future, but you do get to go home proud of yourself, right? You were a part of a win. And it doesn't really matter how you're a part of a win. If you, if your team wins and you did a thing in it, even if that thing was just luck or whatever, whatever, you were the agent of the luck. You were the agent of the win. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I think that this pitcher would... Uh, go home every night with his 7.1 ERA, and he'd be like, boy, I'd really like to start pitching better, and boy, I'm really happy that we're winning, and we've got a good thing going on. And I kind of think his teammates would sort of be the same way and as long as he's undefeated. And I think that you basically tell yourself, well, we're going to probably sacrifice a win at some point because we're throwing this guy out there, but we've got to give him one loss before we pull him. And we... Sort of had an experience along these lines with the Stompers, <laughs> I and I feel like, that. and I feel like probably you and I drew different conclusions from that. Which your conclusion is also very legitimate, if I'm if I'm projecting your conclusion correctly. Um, and so I, I absolutely see that point too. The get them out of there. We're not here to be nice. Business is not to care about you know is not to coddle guys, but to make sure that we win. And it does the team better. In the long run, to uh, uh, to have the best pitcher on the mound, I so that's a very legitimate point uh, and a fair point and one that I wouldn't necessarily argue with. However, I, I think that my position would not be necessarily be that. I think that uh, I would I would have I think I do think to some degree it is the players' game, and uh, you don't want to do anything too extreme to. Uh, shake them of their sense of uh, ownership of the game and being stakeholders in the game. Mm-hmm. So I would, I think, I'd let him lose one. Yeah, I think I, if it were ten, and he, if it was if his ERA was ten, but he were thirteen and zero. First, I would ask how he got,
0: because
3: because <laughs> well, by the second start he's only two and zero. And I would definitely, if he were two and zero, but he had an ERA of ten, I'd yank him, no doubt about it. Yeah, like I'd pull him from the. We're assuming that somehow this guy got to at least six or seven or eight starts, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, I With don't a bad know. Year, right? I don't know how he goes that deep into games because he's he's it's got like an eight or nine ERA. So he's you know in five innings, he's giving up tons of runs every time, and yet he is winning every time. So, so if he's going, I mean, he's he's going five every time, I assume, and then he, this team has ridiculous run support and bullpen. So every time he leaves, the team probably comes back and wins in a miracle. So I don't I don't know if he gets credit for, like if anyone on the team really gives him credit for that. I mean, you'd have to be it'd have to be total superstition because it's not even in some of these times it might be like a pitching to the scoreboard thing or like he gritted it out and you know he gave up six runs but we scored seven and he did what he had to do and that sort of thing but a lot of times he's going to be leaving down by several runs and it's going to have to be crazy comebacks and he's not really going to get Credit for the comebacks that happen after he leaves the game, I don't
3: think. Baseball yeah. players are quite
1: that superstitious, but maybe.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I don't feel very strongly about my position here. And if I had your position, I think I'd feel a lot stronger about it. And that might mean that I don't agree with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is, that's generally what it means. If
3: you, if you feel better about the other person's position than your own. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want... Lo- Look, I wouldn't want to keep throwing the guy out there. Every single time I threw him out there, I I would be like, this is not good. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Come on, we've got to make a change. But I think think I'd ride it. I don't know. I just think I'd ride it. This is probably, I don't know. I don't know, Ben. Three months ago, I would not have said ride it. Three months ago, I would have said get him out of there. Uh And I think that right now I'm in a... A period of uh, contemplation. And so I don't want to say what I would do tomorrow.
1: Okay. Well, three months ago, we did sort of face this t- decision. And I, I guess I won't spoil anything for the book. But, yeah, I won't spoil anything for the book. So my favorite high ERA season of a guy who did not get pulled or demoted or anything and just kept doing his thing is definitely 2004 Sean Shacone. Which is just a yeah. crazy season,
3: just insane. S- seven ERA and 31 saves. 35 that saves,
1: that? yeah. So 66 games and a 7.11 ERA. And
3: granted, this is Coors
1: Field, and eh, 2004. That was post Humidor, right? But still, Coors Field. 63 and a third innings pitched, 52 walks and 52 strikeouts, and yet. So he's got a 7.4 strikeouts per nine, 7.4 walks per nine, and yet, and 12 home runs, and yet he was the closer all year. He was the closer. I don't know if that's like the most progressive thing an organization has done or the most regressive (laughs) thing. I don't know which it is, but that's the go to example. If you think that a closer has to have a 2 ERA, Sean Chacon, he couldn't have even blown that many how many games did he blow that year it must have just been like a crazy he must have had three run leads every time he came in for a save situation let's just well see. he
3: lost he lost nine games okay so there's that
1: <laughs> um but yeah that's like everyone talks about like joe borowski 2007 with the indians who had a, had a five something year. right this is way beyond that so he what? he blew yeah so he blew nine saves And he saved thirty five.
3: Was this an era? I I, remind me if if or tell me if I'm misremembering this, but it feels to me like this was an era where teams were would just like make their starters the closer. Like Chacon, the year before was their ace. He was their all star. Uh He was a twenty five year old starter who had had a one hundred and eight ERA plus the year before. He basically had three years under his belt as a full time starter with a, a basically a league average ERA uh adjusted for course and then they just made him the closer and it he was way worse and then the next year he was a starter again and I'm thinking like Ryan Dempster hmm. was like this Brett Myers was all of a sudden a closer for unknown reasons uh one of, the Reds did this with either Scott Williamson or Danny Graves, Graves I yeah like, I was which,
1: thinking of Danny Graves yeah
3: it, this was just like an era where they're like ah, you're a starter nah <laughs> now you're a closer which I guess we've gotten past that right which, yeah. who's Who's uh, the—we have—there is definitely still an ongoing issue, maybe, arguably, where prospects get introduced in the bullpen and then never escape. But who's the last legit starter that you can remember moving to the bullpen? Like, like Zach Britton was a bad starter who moved to the bullpen. Good good thinking. Wade Davis was a bad starter who moved to the bullpen. Well done. Who's the last league average starter who just randomly got assigned to the bullpen that you can think of?
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Thinking of guys who went the other way, like yeah. Wainwright or something. But, but yeah, I, it's been a while. I think I don't know. Someone will tell us an example from last year or something. But
3: yeah, and like Tan- Tanner Roar, guys who get squeezed out, they don't. They don't count.
1: Yeah, or guys who move for medical reasons, like John Smoltz or something. That that's a little bit
3: different. Yeah, Danny
1: Graves' nickname, Baby-faced Assassin.
3: that's not that is not that is absolutely his wu-tang nickname generator that is baseball reference one day should just replace everybody's nickname with their wu-tang nickname generator now that i think about it (laughs) yeah i
1: you can't have a nickname that's the same number of syllables as your full name including last name i wonder how many times people actually casually referred to him as baby-faced assassin
3: Byung Hyun Kim was another guy who arguably fits this, Uh Uh, although he had at least he had an established career as a as a closer before he became for he he wanted to go into the rotation. He was pitching quite well, uh, as I recall, uh, as a starter, and then uh, all all of a sudden, Boston acquired him and decided after five starts that he needed to be a reliever because their bullpen was no good. Mm-hmm. So they moved him to the bullpen.
1: Yeah, it's
3: another one. All right, play index. But then he went back to the rotation. Play index, sure. Uh, so Zach Granke and others the other day were complaining about the uh, September game. The I say September game because it's a category, a descriptive game, the game in which like sixteen pitchers or whatever were used, and the game went four hours because of the expanded rosters. And they were complaining about how awful it was. And Zach Ranky said, you know, hopefully somebody will do something so this doesn't happen again or keep happening. I forget. So September games, September call-up games, expanded roster games have been uh, around for a very long time. Uh, I don't know exactly when. But certainly when I was a kid, even in the 80s, there were expanded rosters and you'd have these uh, games where all the rookies would get to come in and play. And so it's not like this is a new invention, um, the expanded roster, but I wondered whether uh, there's something about uh, this era that makes teams make use of it more. And so I looked to see uh, whether the number of games in which September columns play such a huge part of them or where the number of players gets out of hand is a modern invention. And so I went to team pitching game finder i set pitchers used for nine i figure nine you almost can't use nine pitchers in a non-september game you can but you almost can't right because you would have to have a 13-man bullpen and you'd have to use every single reliever or you'd have to use a position
1: position player Mm -hmm.
3: yeah um so it'll happen from time to time but very rare and so i look to see uh the number of games matching this criteria uh, by year. And uh, unsurprisingly, or somewhat surprisingly to me, uh, this is fairly modern. Uh, And not just modern, but but kind of very modern. There were 22 games of this sort last year, which is an all-time high. The next highest was 2012, two years before that, with 16. And in the year in between, there were 14. And if you look, even in the 90s, when we had specialized bullpens, when we had expanded rosters, there was, for instance, in 1992, one game like this. 1993, one game like this. Uh, 1996, one game, 98. 99, 2000, one game each. 2001, and 3, a total of five games in those three years. 2004, five games. 2005, two games. So it actually was very uncommon, uh, even though all the pieces were in place for it. Before that... uh, extremely rare. Um, For instance, between 1949 and 1985, a decade, you know, about almost four decades, there were seven such games total. Uh, So that's not that surprising, because you wouldn't use, in the 1940s, you wouldn't use all your relievers. It's actually kind of amazing that there were any games. Mm Yeah. So let's, I'm going to look at this 1949 game. How is this possible? 1949 game, St. Louis Browns against Chicago White Sox. Nine-inning game. <laughs> Nine-inning game. The White Sox used two pitchers. Bill White got, uh, went eight and got the win. Ed uh, Kleiman, Kleeman got the save with a scoreless ninth. But the Browns used Ned Garver, Joe Ostrowski, Cliff Fannin, Tom Farrick, Carl Drews, Bill Kennedy, Al Papai, Red Embry, and Dick Starr. One inning apiece. Which is very, very odd. I wonder what the story is there. I mean, I get that maybe they didn't have a starter, and so they had to do a bullpen game, but they didn't have that many... Like, nobody was carrying that many pitchers. So why? What? Why? This was... Oh, you know what? This is the last day of the season, Uh and it was was the first game of a doubleheader. Uh And so I wonder if... Any of these pitchers were actually not pitchers. But you don't have a tomorrow to worry about, so you can probably use all your starters. The first, the second game of the doubleheader only went five innings.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And the Browns got a complete game from their starter Ed Albrecht.
1: I was going to say maybe it was some kind of Bill vex stunt, but he bought the team two years after that, so it was not. Although it was a really bad team. They won 53 games that year.
3: So Yeah, the White Sox only won 63. Uh the team they were playing. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a mystery, so I'm gonna first, are all these, well they actually pitched well, they only allowed one earned run they did lose 4-3, to three, but I'm guessing these are all actual pitchers because they all pitched effectively. They, they're mostly guys who have careers, like Red Embry had an eight-year career, Dick Starr had a seven-year career, these aren't even September call-ups or like uh, random one-off guys. So weird. This is a weird game. I'm going to have to explore this game on my own time. It's like from the future or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> some kind of time travel game.
3: Yeah, Carl Drews pitched 11 or eight years and was a starter for the team that year. Tom Farrick pitched nine years and was a pretty good reliever for the team that year, averaging two innings per outing. There's not... that's so weird. This is such a weird game. <laughs> not like baseball is a weird game, I mean this game is weird. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can solve the mystery of October 2nd, 1949 at Sportsman's Park 3, please go ahead and do it. Uh, in the meantime, I will attempt to do uh, sometime. Anyway, uh, so these games are... Uh, were obviously very rare, and then the Specialized Bullpen came around and they became conceivable, but still very rare and then we've seen something of an explosion in the last few years. Uh, there uh, there were 15 in 2006, that was the year that it really jumped, to the year before, 15 in 2006. And then since then we've been, uh, it kind of averaged around 10 per year, and in the last three years it's averaged about almost 20 per year. And so this year's got some making up to do, uh, because it's September 10th and we only have eight. And of those eight, only two of them were actually even. Of those eight, only yeah, only two of them were even September games. The rest were random games in the season: uh, a 19-inning game, a 17-inning game, a 13-inning game, a blowout, 17 to nothing game. And so there have only been two this September. So there's a a lot of ground to make up. Maybe this year we're seeing the September call-up game, uh, not as prevalent. But my guess is that it probably will be. And by the end of the year, we'll probably be at 20 or 25. So that's it
1: If you want to do an oral history Of that 1949 Browns game You've got a couple options okay. Of those of those nine pitchers Two mm-hmm. are still with us You've mm-hmm. got Ned Garver Who yeah. is a sprightly 89 And you've got Dick Starr Who is 94 years young
0: Alright
1: So you still, you still got time Reach out I, to Dick Starr Find out what was up that day
0: Yeah
3: I reached out to a pitcher from the 40s one time, and I called him at his home in Utah. And he uh, I talked to his wife, and he never called me back. So now I'm scared of that, of that generation. Because
1: the greatest generation, you
3: can't call him on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Ned Garber, uh, there are, what's his middle initial?
1: Franklin F.
3: I got it. I got a number. What? Yeah, I got it. <laughs> Google? <laughs> Kind of. Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> Alright. Well, we should call internet. him live.
3: Not Google, but internet.
1: Let's, let's call him live. Like that guy we called about the daylight play.
3: Should we? <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be good radio. You wanna try? Alright. Okay. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give you a number. <laughs> okay. All
1: you right. ready? So we're calling Ned Garver.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> That was my plan coming into this podcast. Just answer a couple emails, do play index, call Ned Garver. <laughs> so it's all going to according to plan. All right. Now, are you ready for this? Or are you, are you so uh,
0: go, go scarred ready. by the
1: previous 40s pitcher experience? No, it's going to be a wrong number. <laughs> okay. He spent most of his career in the 50s anyway. So he's he's all right. Okay. Call on Ned Garver.
3: Hello. Hello, is Ned there?
2: This is Ned.
3: Ned, is this Ned Garver who pitched for the St. Louis Browns in
2: 1949?
3: It sure did. Oh, sir, I'm thrilled to talk to you. My name is Sam Miller. I'm a baseball writer with a site called Baseball Prospectus, and uh, my partner Ben Lindbergh is here too. And we were looking at a game that you pitched in 1949, and we had a question for you about it. Do you have a minute? Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so- I have
2: a little bit.
3: All right, so this game was the last game of the season, and it was the first game of the doubleheader. And you started the game, and you guys used nine pitchers for one inning each. And that was so unusual at the time. We're trying to figure out why the pitchers were used that way that day.
2: Well, I don't know why. Ah! I
0: don't
2: know why it was, but I think, we, you know, we would would, – talk about things like that, and we would say, well, maybe that would be a way to do it, you know. You just come in and pitch one inning, then the hitters don't see see you the rest of the day, huh. they see another guy. Really? Because that's, and, yeah. And so I think it was really the idea of the players. I mean, I think us pitchers were the ones that really thought it would be fun to, to do that. But it wasn't anything that the management uh, was thinking up if they wanted to put in as a practice.
1: That's really interesting because that's the way that pitchers are used today, at least much more so than than then. That you know relievers will come in and they'll just pitch an inning or not even an inning, and then they'll get removed from the game. and And people always suggest if there's a like a wild card game or a one game that you really have to win that you should use your pitchers that way and just put your starters in for a couple innings and and you're right that way that you avoid letting the hitters see the pitcher a couple times and and theoretically it seems like it should work so it's uh, really interesting that you tried that so long ago.
2: (laughs) Yeah well we weren't uh, you know we had a we had an active mind you know we, we just we, we would think up stuff just like they do today. But uh, it was unusual to do that. But I, I, I thought, well, what the heck? I thought that wouldn't be too bad of an idea. You know, <laughs> so, but you could pitch about, you could pitch one inning every day.
3: Do you? Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it could work. And I guess uh, you have to have. Have a manager who will go along with it. What kind of manager was Zach Taylor?
2: Well, Zach Taylor was a guy who went by the percentages. You know, I mean, he didn't want to do have he didn't want to do something that uh, that would go against the percentages because he he didn't want to be criticized. And as long as you go with by the percentages. Uh, they they really can't criticize you. They say, "Well, you know that was the that was the percentage thing to do." But then, when you take a guy like Billy Martin or somebody like that, they they you never know what they're gonna do.
3: Which and, kind know, of yeah? Which kind of manager do you like more, the percentage guy or the one who goes with his gut?
2: No, I I like what the guy that would would go with his gut gut feeling. Like uh, what was the name of my manager out there? Rigney, Bill Rigney, mm-hmm. last manager I had out in California, mm-hmm. and he would do stuff like that, you know. Mm. And uh, he would he would do the unusual thing when the when the bunt was in order, he'd have the hit and run or something like that, you know.
1: Mm. So I guess the fact that that was not a very good Browns team, I guess there weren't many very good Browns teams ever, but uh, they went 53-101 and and that year in 1949, so maybe at the end of the year you guys were out of contention and you were playing the White Sox and they were out of contention, so it was probably a, a good time to try it if this was something that the pitchers had been talking about and it was the first game of a doubleheader, so I guess it was the... Was the perfect opportunity to experiment.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would say so. You know, but we would get eliminated about in July. <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, it was so. Uh, it, anything wasn't too delicate after that, <laughs> but you know, you had to be a little careful. Uh, and I know the manager, he couldn't, he couldn't fool around much because. He didn't want to have the newspaper people criticizing him, you know. Mm-hmm. But you're not. But that ball club in 1951, uh, the year I won fi- uh, 20, uh, that was the same way it was then. You know, we were playing the White Sox. We had both been eliminated from contention, and so it wasn't any that mean. The pressure was off.
1: hmm Yeah. And so that was the you won twenty games despite playing for a, a team that won fifty two. Uh, that's pretty impressive. You were the you were, were the only twenty game winner for a team that lost a hundred games. Maybe you still
2: are. Yeah, that's right. I'm the only one. But you know, you got to be lucky. You know, the year before that, I was, I was. Think of that. I was second in the league. With on the, in the earned run average, and with the team that I didn't have a, a star player at every position, like the Yankees did or some those other ball clubs, I had, you know, I had a makeshift lineup a lot of times. But anyway, uh, I had in 1950 I had the second lowest earned run average in the American League, and I won 13 games. Mm-hmm. The next year, I had a good earned run average. I completed 24 games, but I was just lucky. I got runs scored when I played, mm-hmm. when I pitched. So I was able to win 20 games.
1: And Bill Vecch?
2: I didn't pitch any better in 51 right. than I did in 1950.
1: Yeah, and so Bill, Bill Vecch was there by that time, and so he wanted you to, to win 20 for attendance reasons, I guess.
2: He, well, he helped me. Well, I don't know what all the reasons, you know, but Bill Beck was a good guy for the players, and so he got the manager uh, Zach Taylor together with me and 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 Bill, and uh, he said, "Now Garber's got sixteen wins, and he said we've got to give him get him four more starts before the end of the season." So that he's got a chance, a shot at 20 games. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm pretty sure that that wouldn't have happened if, unless Bill Vec had called that meeting. But mm-hmm. uh, because at that time of year, m- most of the ball clubs have bringing up, they're bringing up some of their mi- top minor league players to give them a shot at it. You understand? Mm-hmm. But that way, this way now, we, Bill Veck and, and our manager, Zach Taylor, they mapped out a, a plan that included me to pitch on the last day, last day of the season. So I pitched the four, I pitched four times. I, and so I happened, luckily, the odds against that were pretty high, but uh, th- luckily, I won all four starts. And so I, I, I just am very grateful to, to Bill Veck for what he did there.
3: Did you, you said that you and the other pitchers would sit around and you'd dream up some of these ways to play the game a little different, and one of them was having everybody only pitch one inning. Do you remember any of the other ideas that you guys had, and were they put in play, or were they just ideas that you couldn't get a manager to go along with?
2: Oh, I don't, I don't know. You, you didn't, uh, you didn't really have too much of a rapport with your manager, you know? Your manager, and he was, he was by himself. What well, I mean is, players were players, and when, during the ball game, you know, on the bench or in the, in the bullpen, that's where we would talk about stuff like that. But, but, uh. I mean, I don't know that we. Uh, I I don't know that we did a whole heck of a lot of that, and we weren't uh, we weren't many Thomas Edisons in the bunch. We weren't too many guys that could invent stuff, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I we were just reading something about how you wrote a letter to Major League Baseball about a, a pay a pay plan idea that would help players make more money, and this was. Twenty-five years or so before players actually ended up getting free of the reserve clause. So, could you tell us a little bit about what your proposal was?
2: Sure, I can tell you mm-hmm. that I forget Quayar or something like that was the right was was the man that was in Washington that was looking for information, and so I they were talking about you know letting people be released or go from one club to the next and I just I, I said well if one club doesn't give you a chance to play you know a certain number of games in a year then you you don't have the opportunity to make too much of a salary so if they're going to do that with, uh, I forget what I said, maybe three years or something like that, then they had to either pay you the going rate for that position, or else let you go. Mm-hmm. And you see, I—I I tell you the truth, I don't—I uh, never was for the reserve clause. I never was. For the idea, they wanted me to come to Washington, and because they said you're the ideal guy, if you would have got to go someplace else, you would have made a lot more money. But you just Bruce, Bruce, the, the, the Browns had taken me off the farm and given me a chance to play ball. Mm-hmm. They had invested some money in me. They had done a good job ever of, of, of finding me out. Mm-hmm. So now. I think they deserve to be considered there. I don't think the ball player should have all the right. So now you see, heaven sakes, the ball players, if they all decide that they want to go to Minnesota, then next thing you know, you're going to have the best, the, the best ball club in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And if they all want to go someplace else, Next thing you know, you got the best player, the best team in Miami, or whatever. I I don't personally, I think the setup is is flawed. I don't I don't like it.
1: All right. Well, thanks for letting us know uh, about that. I was also just noticing that you really could hit early on in your career in that uh, in that fifty one season when you won twenty games. You hit three hundred five with some power too. So that was. Uh, that was a pretty significant contribution also
2: I could hit Yeah yeah I could hit I the first year I played ball I hit 407 I did I played some other position and I on some days and I pitched a lot and in 1951 although pitchers don't get much chance to take batting practice and the longer you go the Less chance you have, I think, of being a good hitter. Well anyway, the Browns didn't let me take batting practice. But in nineteen fifty one on some occasions I hit sixth in the lineup. Hmm. And I batted three oh I led the team in hitting at three oh five. And I did I pinch hit ten times. And yeah
3: in Yeah, in your career you pinch hit nineteen times and you hit three thirteen with three walks in those uh in nineteen tri- tries.
2: Well. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that year I got 4 hits out of 10, which is hitting 400. Yeah. So uh, I and I, you know, I when early wind about took my head off, that kind of that kind of shut me off as a hitter. Is it,
0: that right? Uh,
2: scared me. It scared me. I I almost got hit in the head. And uh dog it I thought I, I wasn't making a dime as a hitter. They never paid me anything extra for for batting good and pinch hitting and stuff like that. So I said, you know, if I get hurt, if I get hurt, then I, I won't be able to pitch and I won't be able to earn my living, you know, so Do you, that kind, what, of, that kind what, of scared me.
3: What year was that? Do you remember?
2: Yeah, it, was, it would be in the next year.
3: In you know, uh, 50, 52?
2: Yeah, I would say in 52. So, yeah,
3: up to, through 51, you hit 269 in your career. And then uh, from 1952 on, uh, that dropped way down.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't even try to hit. <laughs> I'm telling you, I just stood there with my feet close together and tr- to be sure I could get out of the way. The only time I would really bear down is if we had a man in scoring position or man on third base with 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 less than two out, where I would try to get him in. But otherwise, I just went through the motions.
3: Yeah, one eighty four after that in your career. But you did draw a lot of walks, and you were a pinch runner quite a bit too. You pinch ran quite a bit.
2: Yeah, I could run. <laughs>
0: He could I do it all. <laughs> wow. i
2: tell you one thing. I, one of the highlights of my career was I was put in to, to play left field one day at Detroit. And I mean at the St. Louis when I guess we had some people thrown out of the ball game or I don't know why, but anyway. He put me in left field. We played playing the Yankees. And now here, listen, listen to this. The Yankees Allie Reynolds in as a pinch runner. Now, here you've got one of the best pitchers in baseball being used as a pinch runner. And now listen to this. As the ball, suddenly so the guy hit a ball that to me, left field. And I charged the ball, and it came up in a nice hop. I got the ball, and I just came up, and I threw a strike <laughs> to our catcher. And Allie Reynolds, the man, the coach threw his sent him home, and he had to try to slide in the, the catcher, and the catcher tagged him out. Now, <laughs> if Allie Reynolds would have got hurt, you know, I mean that's what they never do anything like that now. I mean they know. I don't know what they do these these high-priced pitchers now. I don't know. I don't know if they. They where they keep them in between starts, but I know it so that they don't get hurt.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you were you were the highest-paid player in Brown's history at one point, so people were probably saying that about you. Oh, high-paid Ned Garver making twenty-five thousand dollars this year. Probably don't oh, want to yeah. risk him.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I made I made talks after that. I remember that winter and and one time, you know, I mean, some guy in the audience. He said stuff like that. <laughs>
0: you know,
2: well, you're overpaid, you know, and all this. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, gosh, darn it, a, a ball player, your career don't last too long. Yeah. You know, and so you really have to make some money pretty quick or you don't make it, you don't get ahead very much. Well, you can go to work in a factory. And you might work 40, 40 years there, you know.
1: Yeah. One more, one more question I'm looking at all the hitters you faced over the years and you did really well against some great hitters like Bobby Doerr couldn't touch you for instance but Ted Williams wore you out which I guess is not unusual he wore everyone out but you must still have nightmares about facing that guy He, you faced him 114 times and he hit 419 with a 767 slugging percentage
2: <laughs> and you know you know uh, Ted always said, like he was in a, having an interview. Faye Vincent, the commissioner, was interviewing DiMaggio and Williams. And in this, and in this, it's documented. I, I, you can read it where where uh, where Williams said to DiMaggio, "How did you hit Garver?" <laughs> and DiMaggio said, "Oh, I guess I hit him pretty good." And Williams said. Well, that S.O.B. could throw his glove out there and get me out. Really? Really. Huh. And he said, I saw him down in Florida one day. when We were playing at a golf outing, and he was being interviewed in the locker room there. And that son of a gun said kind of the <laughs> same thing. He huh. said, that little right-hander over at St. Louis, that's one guy that could get me out all the time. Huh. He said I couldn't pick the spin-up on the slider. So I'm telling you, Ted Williams did more for my career. I mean, he said such nice things. That make, makes you think that I was a pretty good pitcher.
1: Wow. And yet he he hit you better than anyone else hit you
2: by a lot. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's better than anybody else. But, I mean, he hit me, hit me good. But a guy like Vic Wertz was the guy that I couldn't get out. Mandel, I didn't have any trouble with mm-hmm. Mandel. But huh. anyway, right. it, uh, they were all tough. Yeah. But I I like to pitch against people like that because if you got them out, you know, you felt like you did something.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And if they got a hit, so what? They were supposed to they were supposed to get a hit. Right. Let me tell you now, I'm going to be on a interview with you know, St. Louis Browns, have their reunion today
0: uh-huh.
2: and at at two a little bit after two here i've got to call there and be on a conference call and speak to that to that uh, reunion bunch oh, that, well. so i've got i've got to get ready and uh
0: okay i well, don't know
2: what i got to do to get ready <laughs> only it's going to happen in a in about 10 minutes.
0: Okay.
3: Okay, well, thank you very much, Ned. It was great talking to you and great hearing that story about that game in 1949. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a great interview today.
2: Okay, call me anytime. <laughs> where, where did
3: All you, right. Where did you serve in the war, by the way?
2: I was in the Naval Air Corps.
1: Uh-huh.
2: But I never served out of this country.
1: Uh-huh, I see.
2: I wasn't in there for very long, and but never, you know, I, I enlisted and it was quite a while before they called me i enlisted while i was still in high school mm-hmm. but they didn't call me for quite a little while but then but then when they did uh you know the, the they didn't take you if you were blind you know they were <laughs> they the war was kind of uh getting over with so mm-hmm. anyway i wasn't uh I never got. I never uh, took a gun and went over there like my brother did. He was over there in the battle the boats and and going out there in the night trying to look for somebody to shoot. Holy crap!
0: Yeah. Well.
2: Yeah, I had a brother also that was in the navy over in Japan and Japan that area. So all three of us boys were in the service, but I I didn't get into the into the real action like my brothers did.
1: Uh Uh-huh. You had better timing. Okay, well.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right, well, thanks again. I told them
2: I didn't want to go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. Well, thanks for your time. This was great.
2: All right. right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How about that? That's done.
1: We should cold call pitchers from the 40s more often. On right. tomorrow's show, we'll call Dick Starr. <laughs> That's the end. Okay. Great thing is if we had called about 15 minutes later, he would have been on another interview.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the, the two interviews he's done in the last 40 years.
1: <laughs> it's a busy day for Ned Garber. But that, yeah. was, that was great. Glad we could do that. Much better than the daylight play call. No offense oh. to the daylight play guy.
3: Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Talk okay. to
1: you tomorrow. That's it. You can send us emails podcast at baseballperspectives.com you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild rate review subscribe to the show on itunes and maybe tomorrow we'll get into a little bit about what we talked about the other day when we couldn't record correctly but maybe we'll call dick star who knows we'll be back tomorrow